Uh, welcome, Calvary Slow. Uh, what we're going to be doing here this morning, I'm, I'm one of the pastors, my name is Brian, and we are actually going through the Gospel of John right now, and we are just kind of in the final stages of summer, as you can see. Uh, both of us are here this morning ready to study God's Word, and uh, so it's going to be great. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and uh, we're going to get to work here this morning, and uh, we're, we're right now basically coming to the very end of the Gospel of John. We've been in it, by the time we're going to be done here, uh, for the equivalent of about a year. That's about how long that we've been in the Gospel of John. We started around uh, this time, around September, I should say mid-September uh, last year. So we've been in the Gospel of John for almost 40 weeks so far as we've been going through this. And so I pray that God will bless you guys this morning as we begin to look at this. What we're going to be taking a look at specifically, in particular, I'm going to start by just kind of saying this. This is the last week of Jesus' life, literally the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, in basically the narrative of the story of the Gospel of John. Uh, just a few days prior, Jesus had come into the city of Jerusalem. It was uh, what was typically called the triumphal entry Everybody was excited. It was kind of uh, Jesus' equivalent to the Democratic Convention. All right? Everybody was excited. Everybody nominated him, basically, as king. This is king. Right? King Jesus has come. He's going to rule over us and reign over us. He's going to wipe out the bad guys, which amounted to the Romans. He's going to establish his reign, his leadership, and his rulership over all things, and this is kind of where you get these little snapshots of like Peter, James, and John, and some of the other disciples kind of discussing among themselves, sort of in heated uh, fashions, and who's going to be the greatest, um, which, which basically demonstrates how ignorant these guys were to really what was happening, all right? So what takes place after the events on uh, Sunday, when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, everybody's waving his palm branches, shouting Hosanna. Uh, basically accepting Jesus as their king. Just a few days later, Jesus basically tells his disciples, I'm going away. I'm leaving you guys. Uh, again, which sort of amounts to Obama at this point saying, I'm done. I'm finished. It's over. You, know, you imagine all these millions of dollars and all of this energy and all of this excitement and media and press and coverage and people following and you know, he's got like this inner circle of people that are like, this is great, I'm going to be the chief of staff, and all these people jockeying for their positions, and all of a sudden, their leader's like, I'm done, it's over, I'm finished, I'm walking away. So Jesus does to these guys. So you'd imagine, as we've been looking at this over the past few weeks, the range of emotions they were sensing, they were feeling, confusion, frustration, maybe a little bit of anger, um, but Jesus is, is, is not shifting at all his plan from the beginning. This is what he has always planned from the very beginning. His goal to come was not to just simply set up an earthly kingdom to overthrow bad guys by the edge of the sword, which is what they were expecting. In other words, if I can put it this way, Jesus was not coming to establish a kingdom based upon the same principles as every other kingdom. Does that make sense? That's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Listen, I'm not a king... After the order of Caesar. You think I'm going to come and kill people, establish a reign, throw out bad guys, and what peace? Jesus is like, no, that's not how things work here in my kingdom. Things work differently in my kingdom. The way my kingdom works is the king will die. The king will serve. The king, who is also the authority, the leader, the overall ruler over all things, 
the king will actually lay down his life and serve. And, and these guys just didn't quite understand that. So what happens is this, this series of events that ultimately leads to the garden. What we've been in over the past few weeks is what's been typically called the upper room discourse. It's a, a message, a sermon, if you would, that Jesus teaches to his disciples. These are his closest of men. Perhaps there might have been a few women there as well. But Jesus is communicating basically some of the most important elements of what he believes, who he is, uh, the, the teachings of the kingdom to his inner circle, getting them ready for the events that are going to take place in the next 24 hours, which is going to be his arrest, his um, torture, his execution, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. All right. So none of these guys, his disciples, are ready for about what's to happen, but Jesus is trying to prepare them so that when these things do happen, they can look back and say, Jesus told us all about this. Okay? He's a good master. He rose again from the dead. He's a good king. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He laid it all out for us. So where we're at right now in John chapter 17 is probably one, honestly, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Um, I'll tell you why. It's one of my favorite chapters. It's the chapter that's basically typically called the Lord's Prayer. It's Jesus' prayer. Sometimes we think of the Lord's Prayer being like the Our Father, right? Our Father who art in heaven. That's really not Jesus' prayer. Jesus, in fact, I would even go so far as to say, I don't even think Jesus can even pray that prayer. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is like, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. Jesus has no trespasses to require forgiveness of. So Jesus' Our Father prayer was basically in response to his disciples who came to him and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He taught them how to pray, and that's how I prayed. John chapter 17 really is the prayer of Jesus. It's the prayer that Jesus prays to the Father. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, one of the things that I think marks Christ a lot is Jesus prays a lot. He sensed that a lot. I mean, throughout passages, you read things like Jesus was up at the crack of dawn, and he's on a mountaintop praying, or late at night, right? It's like in the middle of the night, 12 o'clock. Whereas Jesus, he's up on a mountaintop and he's praying. It, it, was, it was a real regular practice of Christ to interact, to pray, to commune, to fellowship, to meditate upon the greatness of God and to commune with God. That, that was what Jesus' life was like in terms of prayer. Some have described prayer as basically being equivalent to the soul, what oxygen is to our human lungs. And, and if that's true... That, that almost exactly describes the way Jesus lived. Jesus was always in fellowship, always in communion with his Father. So John chapter 17, I think, is so beautiful for this specific reason. It's one of the major uh, capturings of Jesus' praying. I mean, actually hearing what he has to say. Because other passages just simply allude to the fact that Jesus prayed. But it never really records for us the actual content of what he prays. So John 17 does. It records for us the content. Um, I personally think you can learn a lot about people by what they pray for. I really do. I mean, you can, you can actually... I think what you learn about people by listening to what they pray for, you learn about what's valuable to them. Right? Have you ever thought about that? you ever, like, listen to your prayers or listen to the prayers of other people around you? Sometimes... You know, you, you learn about, like, what's valuable to them. Well, one of the things that you kind of see about Jesus as he prays, you learn very clearly what's valuable to Christ. 
we're going to see a lot of things that are very valuable to Christ. Another good example of this is like Paul the Apostle. Paul prays a lot. I mean, Paul exhorts us. He's like, pray without ceasing, right? One of the things I see about Paul is, is Paul often asks the disciples, the people that he's writing to, to pray for him. And some of the things that Paul asks for people to pray for him about are like, hey, pray for me that a door would be open so I can share the gospel. Right? Paul's like, hey, pray for me so that we can go on and carry out this ministry of reconciliation. Or Paul's like, hey, pray for me so that we've got good weather, right, so that we can get from point A to point B and pray that doors would be open, that the gospel could be heard. So obviously, you learn from that, a guy like Paul, Paul's very interested in and very concerned about and very much so values salvation of people's souls. Or really cares about the gospel. Alright? I, I, I just think it's kind of an interesting insight into the soul. So, you know, if you were to pause and just kind of ask, like, what are the things I pray about? Right? What are the things that we spend time thinking about, praying about? Uh, again, it, I think really all it does is it reveals what are the most important things to us. So Jesus prays. It's one of the beautiful passages throughout the New Testament really recording for us what Jesus prays for. Um, some have actually described John chapter 17 as basically being like the holy of holies of all the New Testament. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Because what we have here is, is almost like the disciples eavesdropping on Jesus in fellowship with His Father. And I, and I honestly think that as we look at this, as we see this, one of the things we're going to see that's going to blow our minds is that Christ was so intimate with the Father and in fellowship and communion with God and the things that He prays for. We have this amazing opportunity to actually listen in and hear what He has to say. So with that, what I want to do is um, I'm just kind of give you guys a little bit of an outline as to what we're going to do today, how we're going to kind of approach this. We're going to look at the entire chapter. There's a lot in the chapter and, and the stuff that really appears in the chapter it's not in all one consistent order. So what I want to do is I don't want to miss some of the important elements of it. So here's the way that I want to kind of actually approach John chapter 17. I want to give you some, a perspective of what's happening in John chapter 17. So one of the things, first of all, that I noticed about John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer is that Jesus is really re- making these amazing requests of God. He's seeking God. He's asking God, God... Would you do this? God, would you glorify your name? But he's also praying. One of the preeminent things that takes place at the prayer is it's a prayer for us. It's a prayer for believers. You're going to see that. So take a look at real quickly here what you're going to see um, throughout the, the prayer. And also jump on down about verse 20. He says, I don't ask these things only for them, but also for those who will, be, who, who will believe uh, through their words. So what he's also saying as, as, as Jesus prays, God, I'm praying not only for these guys, my disciples, the apostles that are immediately in front of me, but he's also, I'm also praying for those who, through the apostles, through the things they say, through the way that they live, will also believe. So who does that include? It's all of us. That includes San Luis Obispo, right? It includes California, people in the United States, people in India. So here's what Jesus is saying, that John chapter 17 not only apply sort of locally, but also universally for all those who would believe or trust in Him. So Jesus is going to make a lot of amazing requests to the Father for His children. 
Okay, so one of the things that we're going to see a lot in this chapter are specific things that Jesus has prayed for. So let me ask you, when Jesus prays, think the Father answers? Yeah, he's a pretty good prayer warrior, right? I, I think it's safe to say that. I think it's safe to definitely just admit Jesus, pretty much whatever he prays for, God gives. Except one prayer. Father, take the cup away from me. But Jesus recognized, it's all part of your plan, I'll lay my life down. But everything else, Jesus prays, like, praise God, be with my children. All of these things, what we're going to find out, are gifts that Jesus also has in store for his children. So we're going to see Jesus praying specifically for things for his children, but also specifically pointing out some of the gifts that God has prearranged, preordained for you and I to have in Christ and beyond. So here's what I want to do, okay? Uh, we're going to take a look at specifically some of the areas that Jesus prays for us and some of the things that Jesus prays for us for first. Take a look at those things. All right, there's a bunch of them. I kind of found about six of them in the text. So we're going to take a look at all of them. And then after that, I, I'm going to read through the entire chapter. I'm just going to read through it. And hopefully, the reason why I, I, I wanted to actually read through the chapter after we looked at it rather than read through it first is because sometimes when we read through a passage first, our minds might not fully get it. Our minds are still just trying to settle in and get, you know, undistracted. And so hopefully what I'd like to do, if anything, I'd rather you guys not hear. I mean, if they're, you know, it was like best of both worlds. I would rather you hear what the text has to say. So we'll say that towards the end. When you're all ready, your minds are open and your heart's ready to receive stuff like that. Then anything that I might have to say. So. That's kind of my theory, at least. So we're going to take a look at the several things that Jesus prays for us. Secondly, then we'll just simply read through the text and see what God has to speak to us. Just simply through the prayer that Jesus prays to His Father for His disciples. So the first thing I want for us to basically take a look at, Jesus makes this request for uh, His children or even for Himself and for the glory of God. So the first thing He does is He prays for God to be glorified. You see that basically in verse 1 and verse 5. Actually, other verses too, but these are two verses I want to focus on. So verse 1 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he had lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your name that the Son may glorify you. And now, the, now in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus' prayer to the Father, first and foremost, is God, I'm praying right now that you would glorify me so that I would glorify you. But, but I love this because the standard that he uses is that this glory that's going to be seen here on earth would be the same glory that is equivalent to the glory that's been throughout all eternity past. So here's, here's Jesus saying, God, I, I want to glorify you. What does glory mean? I mean? This is kind of one of these words that we don't really use it often, do we? I mean, we're not like walking around and I will have a glorious latte. I mean, we just don't even use words like this very often. And, and so it's not part of our vocabulary. It's not part of like our, our common you know, lingo. And so when we hear words like glory, we think, oh, that's like Bible terminology. In a sense, it is. But we do see tangible evidences of glory in our world all the time. I'll give you an example of this. It kind of the best way to describe it would be just sort of the definition of what I would give to what glory is. Here's how I describe glory. Glory is basically putting on display something or someone's value or worth or beauty. That's what glory is. So in other words, when you think about a diamond, right? 
I mean, think about a diamond. If you were to take a diamond in a ring, put it on black velvet, take a picture of that, and you get that like nice little sparkle. That, that sparkle is like its beauty emanating. We would say the glory of the diamond, right? Or here's another example. We would probably never think of glory in these types of terms, but as you're driving down the freeway and you see a big billboard, right? It's like for windows or something. What, what, what a billboard is, or what an advertisement is, for Geico, whatever, is, is, is basically an attempt to say, we have a great company, right? Geico is better than any other company. Therefore, we will tell you how great Geico is by having a caveman or a gecko. I mean, I don't even know the connection between how all these things sort of synchronize and work together, but the, the point of the matter behind most every advertisement is to basically put on public display the value of that company. That's it. So when the Bible speaks of glory, in some way, that's kind of what it means. It's putting on display God's beauty. It's the communicating of His renown. It's exalting Him. It's, it's making much of God. That's the idea behind glory. So here's what Jesus is saying. Father, Glorify me, make much of me, so that in making much of me, I would make much of you. And so what Jesus is referring to as he's praying, he's no doubt praying about the cross. He's looking forward to literally what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. Jesus will be on the cross. He's saying, Father, glorify me so that I will glorify you, that all the world will see just how great of a God you are. This is one of the reasons why, guys, We have to have the cross central. The cross is basically the public display of God's beauty. A crossless Christianity is not Christianity. It's not. A crossless Christianity is is, is, is something completely foreign to the Bible. Because the center of God's glory tends to focus, is focused, all around this event that took place 2,000 years ago, whereby Jesus came into the world for that purpose. It's God's way of saying, I'm all glorious. I hate sin. I hate sin so much that I will, I will even have my own son executed, tortured, tormented, to the depths of pain, just to demonstrate how serious I am about sin because I'm an all-glorious God. It's basically God's way of saying, you want to know how serious the offense of sin is to me? It's so serious that I would even have my own son executed. That's that's the picture that God's saying. What it does to us, it gives us this reality of how great God is and how great God's or how great our offense towards God demands a great punishment. Because this is why sin is so serious. I know we live in a day and age that doesn't like to talk about sin, that likes to belittle it, likes to think a little bit less about it. But let me just let me put it to you this way, okay? If sin is not that big of a deal, then Jesus' death on the cross is an overreaction. There's an overreaction on God. Or, it is as serious as God claims it to be. 
God is as great as he claims to be. The offense against God was as great as he claimed it to be. And the cross becomes the center of the glory of God. So Jesus prays in front of his disciples, Our Father, glorify me so that I would glorify you, that I would put your beauty on display so that all the world would see. This is why there's verses like this in the New Testament where it says, uh, we, we know that God loves us because we look to the cross. Or phrases like that, concepts like that, we can understand the love of God. And that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. Those are the ideas, those are the pictures. How great is God's love? Look to the cross. How great is God's justice? Look to the cross. How greatly was God offended? Look to the cross. How serious is sin? Look to the cross. Do you understand? That, that's, that's why in modern day Christianity, if the cross is removed, it's supplemented for anything else. It doesn't matter what it is. It could just be for like good works. Try to help out people. Be kind. For a social gospel. For whatever. If the cross is supplemented, we literally remove the sense of the glory of God. And we're left with a religion that goes into its default mode, which is man is central. Man is central. Man becomes the center of everything. His needs become the center of everything. How we can advance becomes the center of everything. Man becomes central. Not the cross. Not God. Okay. The second thing that we see also in this prayer is Jesus, uh, basically about verse 2 and 3. He talks about God, or praying to God for God to give to His children eternal life. Verse 2 says this, Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you have given Him, He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So here's what Jesus is saying. He says, Father, you've given eternal life into my hands, and you've allowed me to give it to whomever I will. And he's saying, I I give it to them. I give it to these ones that have believed, to these ones that have followed me. But then he leaves no room for kind of, you know, speculation. You know, everybody has kind of their idea, well, eternal life is this, and we make things up that kind of fill in the blank for what we think or speculate eternal life should be. But Jesus says, this is what eternal life is. Eternal life is that they might know you, the Father. That they might know you. That there might be fellowship. There might be communion. There might be relationship between sinner and God. So I think the point that we have to understand very clearly is this, is that Jesus is, is simply leaving no room open whatsoever that somehow we can save ourselves. Or that we can make things right between us and God. I mean, if we take the Bible seriously, hopefully we do, one of the things we have to look at is that salvation is not something that we can generate. Salvation is not something that we can make up, something that we can do uh, as hard as we work and in the ways that we live. And this is part of the problem with the makeup of who we are, okay? By nature, by nature, our default mode is religion, Okay? By nature, our default mode is religion. Let me try to describe to you the way I'm using the term religion. I look at religion in this way of man trying his hardest to make things right between him and God. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to reestablish some sort of connection with God that he knows, deep in his heart, something's not right between him and God. So he's trying hard to bridge this gap to get back to this relationship with God. To fill, if you want, this void. Or however you want to describe it. To make things right. So what happens is religion 
works hard to bridge this gap. We see this in the very beginning in the, New, or in the Old Testament, right after Adam and Eve sinned, one of the very first things they did is they recognized we're naked. All right? Not good. Naked in paradise. Uh, and we know it. That's not good. So what they did immediately, they moved quickly to cover up their nakedness and their shame. That was their attempt to make things right, to cover up their shame, to repair whatever was broken, whatever was missing, whatever was absent, so that when God comes on the scene, He's like, what's up? Well, how you guys been? What's your day been like? And they're like, oh, we hid. Why'd you hide? Uh, we're naked. Who said you're naked? Uh, we ate some fruit and we noticed our clothes were gone. Um, okay. Uh, well, here's the issue. You guys sinned. That's the problem. What did you guys do? And Adam and Eve are like, well, we sewed together fig leaves. And God's like, that's not sufficient. You try to make things right on your own behalf. It's not sufficient. So religion is really man's attempt to try to make things right on their own behalf. It is our default mode. Okay, so I want to give you a couple sort of contradictions or, or, or um, contrasts, I would say, between the gospel that saves, the gospel that Jesus basically says, Father, I've come to give them life, eternal life, that they might be saved. And religion, that is man's effort, man's attempt to be made right with a holy God. Okay, here's, a, here's one of the examples I would say. Religion basically does this. says this, if I do good, God will accept me. Religion says this, if I do good, God will accept me. And, and here's what we have. We have people that are trying their hardest to do good, to live rightly, to help other people, to do kind deeds, to read their Bible enough, to live according to a particular standard that they might try to live by. And what happens is people that maybe don't have the Bible, they make up their own rules. They're like, okay, rule number one, uh, help out ladies crossing the road, right? Rule number two, um, I'll only recycle, right? That's good, that's, that's helpful. And we make up all these rules that we think might actually get God's attention and might get God to like us. If people have the Bible or the Torah, say for instance in the first century, they make up specific rules out of the Bible. They say, you know, you've got to worship only on the Shabbat, any other day is, you know, you are not part of God's family. God hates you. Right? And that was kind of the conflict in the early church. You had sort of this tension that was going on. But religion says this, if I do enough, if I do good, God will accept me. The gospel says this, Jesus did good, you did evil. The gospel says it says that we can't do good. No one does good. No, not one. We've all gone astray. Gospel says Jesus has done good. Jesus has always been good. Jesus has done good for us. And in Christ, we are accepted by God. It's where the gospel leaves us. It leaves us clinging only to Christ. We have to pry our fingers off of our works in order to come to God the way that God calls us to come. Here's why. Paul later would develop this concept into the full, huge doctrines that he teaches in the book of Romans and Galatians where he says this, listen, if salvation was by works, then we could boast. 
we'd all be up there in heaven talking about, well, I got in because I donated a trillion dollars, right, to this homeless fund. I got in because I made soup every day for the kitchen, you know. And we'd be all boasting, all right? It'd be like a junior high locker room. It's not the way God intends it. God expects to be the one glorified in heaven. Not people. So religion says, if I do enough works, good works, God will accept me. The gospel says, no, Jesus is good. Jesus is good. The second thing, one of the things I noticed as well, is we see in religion, is that religion basically says there's two kinds of people. There's good people and there's bad people. There's good people and there's bad people. So religion tends to look at it. Religious people tend to look at this. They break everything up into there's good people and there's bad people. But if you begin to sort of kind of look at like what makes a good person a good person, this is, this is where things kind of run the gamut, right? And some people come on the scene and we're like, well, good people are those that go to church every Sunday, they read their Bible every day, they tithe a certain amount of money, they read out of a King James Bible only because everybody knows every other translation is marred, right? They believe in these six different doctrines, and if they don't believe in those things, then somehow they are not part of God's like little in-crowd. It's kind of funny because we have this tendency to break it all down, like good people, bad people. We're literally left with trying to find who's good, who's bad. See, the Bible, the gospel basically breaks it down in this way. There's bad people and Jesus. There's bad people and there's Jesus. Alright? If you want to further define that and try to understand how this whole thing works, there's repentant people and non-repentant people. That's it. That's the only distinction that we see. There are those people that have been humbled by Christ's free offer to save and change and transform and take their guilt and their shame and their sin away. And there's other people that will say, no thank you, I don't need help. I'll do it myself. It's this religious attitude, even in Jesus' day, broke the world down into the good people and the bad people. This is one of the reasons why I believe Jesus was so consistently at odds with the religious leadership of the day. It's because they lived under this illusion. We're the good ones. They, they did. That's why even Jesus pokes fun at them through prayer, through little statements like this. He says, listen, a guy goes into the temple to pray. And then there's a bum who goes into the temple to pray. The religious leader, once they're in the temple to pray, they're basically praying a prayer like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like that loser over there. And then the loser over there is just like, geez, God, I, I, I just need help. And Jesus says, which one do you think was justified? As if Jesus to say, look, you guys have got it all mixed up. The concept of good and bad are not categories that have you as. Have you as all evil and me good. So I've come to save those that are broken, those that are humble, those that are repentant. Religion says there's good people and there's bad people. 
The gospel says that there's bad people and there's Jesus. There's repentant and there's unrepentant people. Third thing that I see about this is this. Ultimately, when I look at this, uh, religion and religious people, in essence, sort of summarize it all. And it's like this. It's about me. If you were to break it all down and take a look at what they believe and how they view things, it really boils down to it's about me, the way that I view it, the way that I understand it. The gospel says it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. See, what happens, what happens left to our own default mode is we have this tendency to view things through eyes that are broken, right? The broken eyes. And we, we tend to look at certain things and we say things like this, you know, as long as you agree with me on these particular points and we can connect, we can hang out, we can fellowship, we can be part of one big happy family, and we have this tendency to sort of reduce everything down to how I view it, how I see it, how I live it, and again, it boils down to religion tends to be focused upon me. The gospel is about Christ. The gospel is about breaking people. It's about going into their brokenness and seeing them in their brokenness and saving them in their brokenness. Religious people tend to be arrogant. Tend to be joyless. I mean, have you noticed that? I mean, people that are living under these rules and regulations and restrictions, and they're the ones that are kind of rolling out the list, and if you do this, if you do this, if you do that, this is how you can live right. Here's my list of things that you should do and shouldn't do. And they're constantly living in the state of, have I broken this law? Have I broken that one? Whoops, I'm a bad guy. I need to just kind of do better. And everything revolves around them. And there's very little humility, very little brokenness, very little, Jesus, I need you, and I'm a broken person. This is why exactly Jesus' day, Jesus came to sinners and prostitutes, the people that were ripping off the people working for the government. He's like, listen, you guys are messed up. And they're like, I know we are. Can we hang out? Can you come over to my house for dinner tonight? He's like, yes, that's why I came. He comes to religious leaders and says the same thing. And they're like, we're going to kill you. Who do you think you are telling us we're messed up? People that follow Christ recognize, I'm messed up. I need help. I need help. I need Jesus. Religious people love to point fingers. Love to point out failures. Love to point out idiosyncrasies. I'll give you an example of this. I put on my blog a few months ago. I was having a hard day. I was getting distracted. I, you know, it's just like my mind is in a trillion different shattered directions. I get an email that says, what type of a pastor are you? You're supposed to be leading. What a horrible person. You know what type of pastor I am? I'm a stupid sinner pastor, saved by grace. All right? And if you thought that was offensive, if I even shared with you one eighth, one tenth, one one hundredth of what this brain thinks, none of you would even come to this church anymore. All right? Do you understand that? It's not about who's good, who's bad. It's about Jesus and grace and kindness, and mercy, and love, 
coming to seek and save the lost, find those who have failed, who know they failed, who are desperate for Him, and in humility crowd, Jesus, save me. While the religious people sit and point fingers and say, you're an idiot, you guys are stupid, you're off base, you're horrible people, we know because we're better. We're better. We understand the Bible. Unfortunately, you don't. We understand how eternal life works. Obviously, you don't. People that have met Jesus and are affected by Jesus recognize they're just messed up. They're just as messed up as anybody else. But just like what Jesus says, I've given them life. Eternal life is this, that they know the Father. I've said this before. When I was about 15 years old, I was a messed up kid. My parents were divorced, trying to figure out what life was all about. I was totally lost. Didn't understand it. Trying to find out who I was. Trying to just survive. Trying to just do what a guy has to do to live when his dad's going to school and his mom's off doing whatever his mom's doing and and they're divorced. And, and, and I was just a kid trying to figure out what life was about. And what happened to me was I grew up in the church. I was a Catholic. I, I went to confirmation. I did everything that Catholics do. I was still going actually to, I think it was called CCD or something like that, some sort of like weekly deal. And I was you know, hearing the Bible taught. And, and, and honestly, to the credit of the youth leader, I, I believe she was a, a Christian. I think she knew Jesus Christ. The problem was, one of the things that I discovered shortly after I came to know Christ was that my whole life, I had known about God. I'd known about Him. You can ask me questions about the Trinity. I can tell you. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that my beliefs about God were orthodox. I wasn't a heretic. I wasn't like believing crazy, weird, psycho stuff about God. I mean, I believed Jesus was the Son of God, came down from heaven, born of the Virgin Mary, and I believed Jesus had other brothers and sisters. I was kind of unique in that sense, but... uh, I recognize that Jesus died for my sin, rose again, seated at the right hand of the Father, He was going to come again. I believe all that stuff. What I realized shortly after I came to know Christ is I had known about Him, but I never knew Him. Never, like, knew God. Never knew Him personally. And that was the thing that changed my life. Was sitting, literally sitting in a Volkswagen van again, talking to my stepmom in the parking lot of the Catholic church we went to, something happened. I don't even know how to describe it or define it or even know the exact date. I think it was somewhere around March 86. Somehow, out of a dialogue that I was having with my stepmom, all of a sudden, in an instant, everything just seemed to make sense about who God was, what He was like, and what He wanted to do for me by saving me and cleansing me and washing me. It was at that moment, somehow, it was as if all this information I had about God was inadequate. And all I wanted was just to know was God. I don't want to know about you, God. I, just, I want to know you. I want to know you. That, guys, is what the gospel does. It opens your eyes to a place of saying, God, I just want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want my sin to be forgiven. I want to be cleansed. I want to be made right in your eyes. I want to love whom you love. 
I want to be where you're at. I want to love the church. If you love the church, Jesus, and you gave yourself for the church, I want to be a part of the church. That is what the gospel does. It's post-religion. Okay, as we continue and we look at this, the third thing that I notice that Jesus prays for is in about verse 8. He basically prays that the words of God would be given to His people so that upon hearing these things, they would see the truth and that the truth would lead to trust or belief. Take a look at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have, and they have believed that you have sent me. I have given them your word, and, your, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. So here's what Jesus is saying. He said, Father, I pray, and I've given to them your word. So here's another gift. All right, we're talking about kind of gifts that Jesus gives to his children as he prays. Another gift that Jesus gives to his children is this. He says, I've given to them your words. Now, I don't know how that affects you guys or how that impacts you, but sometimes I admit that we can have our Bibles open and we can read them, and it doesn't impact us. It just kind of becomes like information, like every other bit of information, right? Like CNN or Google headlines or dig headlines, whatever. I mean, it's just like just more information. But Jesus says, Listen, I've given to them your word so that in seeing your word, they would have the truth. In seeing the truth, their eyes would be open, they would believe. The point that I would make is this, is the purpose of the word is not to lead to arrogance, but to Jesus. Right? To lead to Jesus. I pointed this out before several times, that one of the big issues, again, that Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, He says, you guys search the Scriptures. The Scriptures are truth. Every first century Jew knew this. The Word of God is truth. There was no question. In there. I mean, there was no higher critical looking at the text first century. They, they, they just took the Bible at face value. This is God's Word. That's it. They didn't criticize it. They didn't critique it. They didn't belittle it. It was God's Word. It was truth. But Jesus says, listen, here's the problem. The way that you guys read the truth, the way that you read the Word, is you read the Word, and what happens is you become arrogant because you literally have deduced it to a bunch of rules and regulations, but He says, the Word is what leads to me. Everything leads to me and the truth, and you guys have not seen it. So Jesus says here, he says, I pray to the Father, he says, Father, I've given them your word, they've seen the truth, and they believe in me. That's where the word ultimately ought to lead us, is to trust in Christ as we love him. The fourth thing that I notice is this, is he talks about basically um, God protecting them. He says, God, I've protected them while they're in the world. He basically prays for the future protection. Uh, verse, seven, or verse 12 in chapter 17 says this, uh, we're going to take a look at verse 12 and verse 15. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. And I have also guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. So here's what Jesus is praying. He says, Father, I have, I've, I've guarded them. While they were with me, while they were in the world with me, and while we walked around the Sea of Galilee, and we came back and forth from Jerusalem to the Galilee, and Samaria and all these other locations. He says, I, I protected them. I was with them. I lost none of them except Judas and 
uh, don't read into that as, oh yeah, Jesus unfortunately lost Judas. That's not at all what the text implies. So the English reads, it's not what it's stating that Jesus somehow had Judas saved and then Judas was lost. It was, that's why the very next verse is, but rather so that the scripture might be fulfilled. The point is, is that Judas was never in the kingdom. He was part of the group, but never in the kingdom. But he says, the rest of them I've always kept. I've always kept them. I've always protected them. And he says, listen, as I go, would you continue to protect them? You're taking me out of this world, Father, but these guys are going to stay in the world. Would you keep them while they're in the world? Which brings up a very important subject. Okay? It goes into this bigger concept of where does Christianity lead to after Jesus is left? Where does Christianity lead to? Um, maybe, maybe, maybe ask another question. What should Christianity look like today? <laughs> Take it one more step further. Is what should your Christian life look like? You're like, you pastor's prying now. I'm prying. Yes, I am prying. What should your Christianity look like? Alright? What should it look like? Because I'm afraid what's happened as Americans, we've become like so inundated with like culture around us, we have come to a place of viewing Christianity as just something we participate in, we're a part of, we do on Sunday morning, and that's basically the extent of it. Jesus, in His prayers, says, Father, I'm going to send them into this world in the same way that you sent me into this world. Be with them. Guard them from the evil one. Protect them. While Jesus was on the earth, one of the things that he'd done with his disciples was pretty, I, I would honestly even go so far as to say it was, it was extraordinary what he does. Jesus visits several places that no good Jew would ever visit. Here's a couple examples of them. One, Jesus goes to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It was literally the center of worship for a god named Pan. It was like complete worship of this goat god. It, it, it was this goddess, or the god of fertility, god of uh, harvests and all that, and they would sacrifice these goats. Horrific. I mean, this whole city was dedicated to the worship of this god. And Jesus brings, his good rabbi, Jewish rabbi, brings his little entourage of disciples into the city, and they're all hanging out. Now, I... I would imagine his disciples are a little bit nervous. They're kind of freaking out. Like, what are we doing here, Jesus? It's like Jesus taking people today, modern day, you know, in the world. Like, we're going to go to the red light district in Amsterdam. Is that cool? So we're going to go. We're going to go down the skid row. So we're going to hang out. We're going to have Bible study in Amsterdam, sitting on the street corner in the red light district. Is that cool with you guys? They'd be like, well, Jesus, no good Christians go there. Thank you, Bill. Um, the point that I'm making is that this was radically countercultural. It was not the place where good Jews would go. He was preparing them for what the future would look like. He brings them to another city called uh, Samaria. Samaria was equivalent to the capital of apostasy. All right? say, Jesus says, hey, listen, we're going to go to Salt Lake City and have Bible study. All right, ready? Salt Lake City. We're going to sit at the temple steps right there in Salt Lake City. You guys ready? Church. Open up your Bibles, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the picture. And, and, and in Samaria, where apostasy is all around them, but here's how the kingdom's going to work. Over and over again. Another example, Jesus goes to this place called the Gadarenes. 
There's a guy, he's a demoniac right there. It's like Jesus saying, hey, we're going to go into San Francisco in Alistair Crowley's house. Just have a little worship time. Is that cool with you guys? Is that cool? Church of Satan, is that right? Have a little church. Yeah, is that cool with you guys? Um, and, and, and it's as if he's to say, listen, I'm fitting for you a pattern. Because when I leave, in the same way the Father sent me into the world, I'm also sending you. And when I'm not there, you're going to be tempted to be afraid. You're going to be afraid. For the right reason, you're going to be afraid. There's demonic forces out there that are out to destroy you. The world, the flesh, and the devil are in concert together to wipe you out. But Jesus' point is this. Listen, I'm going to protect you guys. In the same way that I protected you while I was here, I'm going to protect you in the future. I'm going to protect you guys. In fact, Jesus even makes this deal even better. He's like, listen, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses all around the world. There's a couple dangers that I think that I think need to be a, we need to be aware of. First of which, as Jesus sends his disciples out in the world, first of all, we need to be aware of uh, capitulation. What I simply mean by that is basically becoming like the culture or using the cultural means to move forward um, or think we're moving forward God's kingdom. I'll give you a couple examples of this. In the New Testament, first century, there's a group of or community of people that lived out in the area called the Dead Sea. Um, nobody really knows exactly who this community was or what this community was all about, but some of the things that they do know, this is where they actually found the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the things that they do know about this community that's out in the Dead Sea is that they were a group of people that were committed to basically getting away from it all. And, and, and they were basically afraid of the culture around them, so these guys weren't capitulating. What was happening is basically these guys were separating. They separated themselves entirely from everything that was on the planet because they felt everything was evil, so therefore God's true people, God's true children, touch not, taste not, look not, because it's all evil. So perhaps motivated by fear, they removed themselves. There are also other people that I mentioned capitulated. Basically these are people that would become like or use forms around them to, to try to promote God's kingdom. Give me an example. One of the, there's a group of people first century called the Zealots. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, a guy by the name of Simon, he was a zealot. And there's another guy by the name of um, Matthew. He was a tax collector. Zealots and tax collectors hated each other. Zealots were a group of people that basically said, we love God, we love the Torah, and we will fight anybody who stands opposed to these. And so zealots were basically the first century equivalent to terrorists. Right? These were the guys that would go out and if they had the means, they would set off bombs for the name of God. Tax collectors, and they, they were guilty of capitulating to the culture by basically using the exact same means that Rome did. Jesus says, that's not how things work in my kingdom. We don't blow up people. We don't attack people. We don't stab them. We don't kill the bad guys. That's not how it works. That's not how my kingdom works. You're capitulating. There's a danger of capitulating. There's also danger of separating, as I mentioned about this Qumran community. The third example that I would say that I think is a danger is apathy. 
where we just don't care. It's a danger. I believe that's a danger that's probably where most of us reside in our culture. We just don't care. Just the thought of like God sending us into this world to be missionaries is just something that we just don't really lose a lot of sleep over. We don't even really spend a lot of energy thinking about it. But I would challenge you guys to consider something. If Jesus prayed, God, protect my children, the ones here now and the ones that are going to believe one day, if His desire is to send us into the world as He was sent into the world, we should care about this. We should be so motivated by the fact of God's greatness being so great that we would be willing to sell house and home and rearrange our finances in such a way to look at the way we live and say, how am I living that is not lined up with the Gospel? How are my spending habits, my spending patterns, completely unsanctified and more selfish and self-centered than serving others? How, how do I live, God, in such a way that is basically giving evidence to the fact that I'm either A, capitulating, B, separating, C, to simply apathetic? Because the bottom line is Jesus says, listen, Father, protect my children. I love this. Because what, what this does to me, personally, is it says, you know, I, I can go into this world, I can go into places that could be just downright dangerous for any Christian. And I know that Jesus has prayed to the Father to protect me from the evil one. Yes, there's things I've got to be careful of. Yes, I've got to keep vigilant, keep watch. But at the same time, even when I'm unable to keep watch or I'm in complete ignorance, it sure encourages me to know that Jesus is right behind me in the presence of the Father praying these very things for me. It's awesome. Okay, we're almost done here. The fifth thing is this. Verse 13, Jesus prays for our joy. He says this, Now I am coming to you, Father, in these things that I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. Jesus says, Father, would you just give them your joy? I was talking to a guy this week, and, and these are the types of like coffee hangout times I love the best. We're sitting there talking, and we're talking about, um, we were talking a little bit about the message last week, and he was uh, commenting how, he says, you know, I wonder if in America, one of the things that we miss out on uh, because we are a community of people that don't really experience that much suffering compared to like our brothers and sisters in India, that that if perhaps because we don't experience this depth of suffering, he says, I, I wonder if we also experience a shallowness of joy. In other words, I wonder if the proportion of our joy that we experience is somehow related to the depth of suffering we experience. I was just like, yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of us as Christians, we're, we're just, we're bored. We're bored of God. We come here at church on Sunday and we sing songs. Ah. Oh my goodness. It's a long message. Um, and we're just not, Jesus doesn't fulfill our joy. Jesus says, listen, I pray, Father, for them that they might have joy. The same type of joy that I have in your presence. Alright? I realize part of the lack of excitement might come from pastors. If that's the case, apologize for that. But I hope more than anything, it's Jesus that you come here and meet with. The last thing is this. 
is unity. In verse 22 and 23, Jesus prays for our unity. He says, I do not ask for these only, but for also those who would believe in me through their word, that they might be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, just that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that the glory that you have given me I may also give to them, that they might be one even as you are one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I am them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus' final prayer here in this of just saying, God, this is what I want you to do for my children, is make them one. What he uses as a standard for unity, and did you notice this, what he uses as a standard for unity is the Father. The, the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Spirit are the standard for this unity. And it's basically this concept that out of the Trinity, out of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who are in unity with themselves, there's no argument, no dissension, no frustration, no one's upset because someone's at a different place, no, no, one, no one is upset because someone got a little bit more than the next. In fact, they're all proportionately happy. This is out of that, God. I, I pray that you would make my body one, even as you and I are one. You know, I've discovered that something that kind of bums me out a lot is that in the modern day world, especially in America, we have made the basis of our fellowship, the basis of our unity, a set of do we agree on the same books? Do we agree on the same methods of church? Do we have the same taste? Do we have the same hairstyle? Do we wear the same clothes? Do we like the same pastors? Because if you like that pastor, I don't like that pastor, so therefore we can't fellowship. It's horrible. I just think it betrays the heart of God. It's not the way that God intended for things to be. Jesus is so clear. He says, listen, the basis of our unity and of our fellowship is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And if you believe and if you trust and if you treasure Christ as infinite, you are brought into this unity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You might have different methods that you are brought up in. Guys, the reality is this. In heaven... It talks about, in the book of Revelation, people out of every tribe, tongue, nation, culture will be gathered together around the throne. You know how to interpret that? Black people, red people, white people, purple people, red people. Everyone will be gathered around the throne of God. Every one of those people have different cultures, different methods, different styles. i got news for you. Church in heaven, I don't think will look anything like Calvary Slow. What do we base as our unity? Cultural distinctions? Or the cross? This is one of the reasons why I personally get bummed out about denominations. Not that I don't see them as possibly necessary. It's a whole other message. But the reality is that when we begin to emphasize our distinctions, 
over the cross and Christ and the Trinity, we've erred. We've made divisions that Jesus prayed against. What I want to do right now is I want to finish by reading the whole prayer and then we'll finish. Okay? I just want you to listen to it. In fact, this is what I want you to do. Let's do this. Jonathan, why don't you come on up? We're going to, uh, as soon as I'm done here, we're going to kind of go into worship, transition. But what I'd love for you guys to do is, is maybe even just kind of bow your heads if you'd like. I'm going to have, maybe we can just turn off the, the lights. And I just want for us to, to, to listen to the words of Christ as He prays in intimacy to His Father. And hopefully, now that we've kind of looked at some of the examples or some of the ideas or themes or concepts that basically brought up through the prayer, I want for us to just listen to the prayers that flowed out of the mouth of Christ uh, from His heart to the Father. And then, um, and then uh, we'll finish up here. John chapter 17, verse 1 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you. And I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me. For for they are yours. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as you are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world too, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as I love, even as you love me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you may have that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and those and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus, right now, we just pray that you would would fulfill this, that you would work this out, that you would help us to just learn from these truths that are found here and that God, if anything, you would cause us just to rejoice over the fact that Jesus, in your prayer, just prior to your arrest, you were thinking about your children. You prayed for them. You prayed for us. Thank you for that, Lord. We serve a great Father, great God. Jesus, this is why we love you. So I pray right now that as we worship you, that you would receive the praise that's due to your name. Because as we worship, I just encourage you just to call upon God's name, to love him. If you're here and you have not been brought into this fellowship with Christ, ask God to forgive you of your sin to wash you, to cleanse you, to bring you into fellowship with Him, God will. If you're here and you need prayer for anything, we have a little prayer area over here. Encourage you, grab someone, have them pray for you. Let's just worship the Lord a little bit. We'll dismiss you guys.